Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. In the course of a career spanning 104 harvests in the northern and southern hemispheres, Bruno Prats has become one of the world's great wine figures. He took Chateau Costestunel in Saint-Esteve to super second growth status in Bordeaux, and now divides his time between projects in Chile, Portugal and South Africa. Listen to us chat about how the wine world has changed over the last half century, about what makes a great terroir, and why he's happiest on a boat at sea. Hello, Bruno. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Tim? I am fantastic, and it's lovely to hear your voice. I I assume you're in Geneva at the moment, aren't you? Uh, Absolutely. That's where I live. Not on your boat? Uh, well, not in the winter time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you, I remember you said once you're a blue water sailor, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Listen, it's fascinating to talk about your long career and in so many things, in winemaking and in wine politics, and you're, you have a very intelligent overview of everything. I, I just want to do a little bit of family history at the beginning because you're quite interesting in that sense too, in that you're one of your grandparents, Fernand Giniste, was obviously a very famous winemaker and owned... Chateau Margaux and also uh, Chateau Castanel and Castanel, obviously, but Jean Prats, another grandfather, he worked in the aperitif business, didn't he? Um, were you ever interested in going to the aperitif business? Do you think was it, was that bit of your bit of your past fascinating? Well, um, I, I have some good memories of uh, visiting the the, the cellar in, in set where these aperitifs were made because it was extremely aromatic. It, it was. Uh, <laughs> chamomile, uh, flowers, macerating in uh, in wine. But uh, I don't drink spirits. I, I drink only wine and, and some beer in the summertime. So you never wanted to be a distiller or an aperitif maker? Certainly not. No, exactly. Yeah. But you were brought up in Set, weren't you? Not in Bordeaux. I was born in Set. Yeah. I grew up in Paris, actually, but I was going to, to Bordeaux. My mother was from Bordeaux, and I was going to Bordeaux for all my holidays, so... Uh, I was in saint Estève during all my holidays, and that's where I, I got exposed to, to the wine business. So between those three places, really, between Set, you know, on the Mediterranean, obviously, uh, Paris, where you went on to study, and then Bordeaux, which has always been a big part of your life. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, you studied agronomy and then viticulture in Paris and then Montpellier, two very prestigious academic institutions. Yeah, these are the Grands Écoles, it's the equivalent of Oxford and Cambridge, really, I suppose, in this country, and it's very diff- different in some senses, I suppose. I just wonder what you, what you learnt there above all, because was it very cerebral and, and theoretical? I mean, did you do get your hands dirty and go into vineyards and pull hoses and things like that? You see, in my time, studies in France were very academic. Uh, the high level of, of science in biology, chemistry, and so on, but uh, very, very academic. Uh, I did only one training for a month in, in Burgundy uh, at Senar in, in Alostorto. But it's, it's a change a lot. My grandson has just graduated from Montpellier, as I did. And uh, he, he already worked uh, at, at Dangerville in, in Volney, uh, at Vega Sicilia, at Chateau Latour, at Claude Tard. He's presently at Aisele in Napa Valley. So it's completely different now. That, that's amazing, isn't it? And whereas in those days, it was very 
was it very book based? You were just study, reading scientific texts, were you? Yeah, yeah, that, that was really uh, very academic. Yeah, and was that a, was that a useful foundation for you as a winemaker? Yeah, of course. But if you don't have the, en enough knowledge of uh, uh, the biological processes, mm. uh, you cannot really understand what's going on when the wine ferments. And uh, and if you want to control, you must understand what happens. Yeah. Though I admire people of the past who made beautiful wine without knowing at all <laughs> what was going on. Yeah, and it's a very Burgundian tradition, isn't it? I mean, now people study, but, you know, I mean, Henri Jaillet, I'm sure, didn't read a scientific book any, at any point in his life, really. No, no, even when, when I took over at Cause des Tournelles, the, the people in charge, the Maître Nouché, had absolutely no theoretical knowledge. And, and therefore, he sometimes made mistakes. <laughs> in what sense? That the wines were sometimes volatile or oxidised or had Britannomyces? Yeah, or... absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Not well controlled. Yeah, so they, they, were, they were riskier wines in a way, were they? But... And, and they were poor vintages. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you can't really afford to do those anymore, can you? Especially at the top level, you can't afford to make those mistakes. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you see, I started with two miserable vintages, <laughs> 68, 69, especially 68, my first vintage, absolutely miserable with major botrytis problems. Yeah. Um, this, this would not happen today. And unfortunately, it didn't happen later in my wine life. In your career, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, your, those first vintages, you were with your uncle, weren't you, with Pierre Geneste, and you started at Chateau Margaux, which was a family property. I mean, you were really starting at the top. I mean, what, what was Bordeaux like in the 1960s? Because we tend to imagine that Bordeaux has always been the same, but it's evolved massively, no, hasn't no, it? No. Uh, you, you cannot imagine how badly run <laughs> uh, Chateau Margaux at that time. Uh, and it's only because the terroir is absolutely magic and great that, that the wines were, were still very interesting. But uh, the winemaking was really poor. There was no second wine. There was no selection at all. Uh, there was no control. Analysis uh, uh, control was done after Botley because it was necessary for export papers. Oh, and then what would happen if you found it had a, a level of volatile acidity over one or something? It's too late. Bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> so you did 68 and 69, these two terrible vintages or very challenging vintages. I mean, did you learn anything from working at Chateau Margaux with your yeah. uncle? Were you dying to get going at course? No, no. What I learned is that there were many, many things to, to be changed. And what I also learned is that the terroir is really the key to quality. Because even with rather poor winemaking, uh, the wines were, were not really bad. They could have been much better, but they weren't really bad. Yeah. And could you see the differences between different parcels of the vineyard at Chateau Margaux? Were, were, they, were they vinifying things separately, different, different lots? Well, there, there was no, uh, no real selection. So uh, mm. they, they were able to mix in the same that um, blocks of, of very different quality. And that's certainly one of the things uh, I, I've done, of course, uh, really from the very beginning, to be selective. Yeah. I mean, because you, you took over at COS, uh, you know, as CEO in your mid-20s, I mean, which was extremely young. I mean, especially even more so, I think, in those days when people were a bit more traditional and probably afraid of 
people with academic qualifications. W- were you intimidated? Yeah, it, it was very challenging. Hmm. Uh, I think I was very naive. I, I did not measure the, the difficulty of the exercise. <laughs> but um, uh, yes, I certainly made uh, many mistakes at the beginning. Uh, I must say I had good support from uh, some uh, some friends, uh, some some neighbors. Jean Eugène Bourgui, for example. Yeah, uh, lovely he's man. Been extremely supportive with me. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, you, you, I remember you telling me a story about the Maitre de Chais and people came to visit, and and and, and he sort of almost closed the door in their face and said, "But visit, right?" <laughs> that was my first experience of uh, the commercial attitude. <laughs> but uh, commercially speaking, um, we, we were doing nothing. I mean. Uh, there were just the, the courtier, the broker, coming once a year to taste the wine and, and then giving a phone call, uh, uh, su- suggesting a price, and, uh, and then the deal was done en primeur for the total crop. And, and that's it. No visit, no promotion, no tastings. And did en primeur exist as, as a phenomenon where people... Oh, yeah. So the merchants would come, would they, and taste? Well, honestly, at, at that time, the, the imprimeur was necessary just because we didn't have the cash to, to carry the inventory and to wait until bottling time. Yeah. I, I had to borrow the money from, from the Crédit Agricole every year before harvest to, to pay the harvesters. Wow, it's unbelievable. What a change, really, isn't it? I mean, that's only, that's only 50 years ago, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, what sort of reputation did Cos have then? It's always had this incredible chateau. It's one of the most beautiful chateaus uh, in Bordeaux, sitting up there on top of the hill. Um, what, what sort of reputation did it have in, in the wine trade in those days? Uh, at that time, the star of saint Estef was Moreau's. Yeah. Uh, just because Moreau's, which has a, a terroir as good as Cos, hmm. uh, was much better, uh, was much better well-made. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Than, uh, than Koss at the time. So Koss uh, was, I mean, behind Moros. Yeah. And my challenge really was to try to put Koss slightly in front of Moros, <laughs> which I'm, well, I think I succeeded yeah. in, in that. So, so where did you start? Did you start in the vineyard? I mean, you're a terroir man, right? Yeah. As, as always, as always. If it's not in the grapes, it, it will not be in the wine. Yeah. So uh, the, the first thing was uh, the healthiness of uh, uh, of the vines, uh, the control of the vigor, uh, and the control of the ripening to to pick each block of part of block at the perfect time. Yeah. Uh, in, instead of picking uh, always in the same order year after year. And did you pull some grapes out and plant different varieties in different places? Yeah, that, that was a, a long-term process because, of course, uh, to make Cos de Sonnel, you need vines which are more than 12 years old. So that, that was long. But yes, there, there, was, a, there was some mistake. Um, they, they used to, to plant the Cabernet Sauvignon at the bottom of the hill uh, because there is more risk of frost. And uh, the budding of the Cabernet being later, that diminishes the risk of frost. Yeah. And, and that's a mistake because the bottom of the hill, which has more clay, hmm. is much better for the Merlot and makes a, a very good Merlot. Whereas the Cabernet needs a deep gravels, which you have at the top of the hill. Yeah. So I reversed that, but it, it's a very long and slow process. Yeah. 
my son benefited from <laughs> from your from, from your work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you've always been a, a passionate defender from the first time I met you of this whole French notion of terroir. Um, you know, which, which I think is something sometimes misused, isn't it? Not just in France, but in other places. I mean, how do you explain terroir to a non-French audience? I think you've got a very funny story about trying to explain it to somebody in the you States. See, one, once in, in Dallas, Texas, uh, uh, I was commenting on a wine and uh, uh, speaking of the complexity of the bouquet. And uh, a, a big guy with a typical Texan hat uh, rose his hand and said, what do you mean by complexity? And um, I went into a rather confusing <laughs> speech. So he rose his uh, hand again and said, can't you make it simple? <laughs> so it's, it's a little of the same for, for terroir. There is no simple uh, explanation mm -hmm. about terroir because terroir is a combination of soil and microclimate. Yeah. And I think the, many French are wrong in speaking of terroir only with the soil, yeah. because you cannot separate the soil and the climate. Uh, I, I give you an example. Uh, when we, Paul Pontalier, we, we selected uh, a location for our project in Chile uh, on the footstep of the Cordillera, mm. we, we found a location uh, uh, which was quite different in the upper part and the lower part. The upper part was more rocky, uh, much less uh, lime, and uh, we thought it would be the best part because in, in Europe, with uh, uh, the importance of drainage, that uh, would have been the best part. And the lower, the, the, the lower part, which was deeper with more lime, uh, for us, we, we thought would have been lesser quality. But in Chile, it doesn't rain at all during all the summer. So drainage is not an issue. And it turned out that the best part <laughs> is the lower part. That's why you cannot separate uh, the climate and the soil. The terroir is a combination of soil and microclimate. What, what, what about the human, what we call the human element? Do you think people are part of terroir, particularly the the things that people bring to a terroir, like you did at Cost, you know, where you move the Merlot and the Cabernet around. Is that important part of it? Matching the grape variety with the terroir is, is key. It's, it's essential. Uh, Pomerol in the 18th century was probably mostly white grapes. And nobody ever spoke of uh, quality wine from Pomerol at that time. So, and finding... The, the great variety, the, that's the major, the major challenge. And uh, that's why France has done through a very, very long history. Mm. Uh, in a new country, it's, it's much more challenging, really. Yeah, because, because you don't have the time. human factor, purely yeah. human factor. Yeah. Tell us what makes the terroir of Kos so special. I mean, I don't, would you agree that it has almost as much in common with bits of Poyac as it does with the other bits of Santa Estef, really. I mean, it's kind of on the limit, isn't it? Yeah, well, uh, uh, many brokers uh, have been telling me that Kos was not a typical Saint Estef. Hmm. Uh, that may be a good question. Thing. <laughs> 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 Which is the typical Poyac? La, La Tour, so close to Saint-Julien, yeah. or Lafitte, so close to, to Saint Estef? 
there is a continuity uh, of, of variation. Uh, and uh, yeah, well, maybe, maybe there are, there are more similarities uh, um, with, with, with Lafitte, but nevertheless, Kos is unique. Hmm. But you're at the top of quite a steep slope, aren't you? I mean, there are obviously yeah. vineyards yeah. on the flatter part yeah, of the plateau it, as well. Because in, in the local dialect means uh, a hill. Ah, okay. And, uh, yeah. So the slope is important, and uh, they are, which is interesting, that part of the slopes are facing south, which is perfect for Cabernet Sauvignon, which needs enough heat. heat. Yeah. And, and uh, the other part is facing east, hmm. which is cooler and perfect for the Merlot. And uh, that's why both grapes uh, are doing well, and it, it's important to have both grapes at, at Cosme Stondel. Whereas at Lafitte, for example, it's almost entirely Cabernet Sauvignon. And did you have the other red Bordeaux grapes as well in small percentages or not? No, I, I, tried, um, I tried Cabernet Franc, and um, it, it wasn't a success. Yeah. And Petit Verdot, in my time, hmm. the climate was too cool for Petit Verdot. Yeah. Today, Petit Verdot is, is a grape that, uh, that is very interesting in Bordeaux with, with the global warming. Yeah. I mean, Ecosse was part of your family, as you said, from 1917 till 1998, and you decided to sell to the Taillon Group, who then sold to somebody else two years later. But how, what was that like for you after 28 years of running this thing where you'd put your whole life into it? Was the, was the offer just too good? No. Uh, very simply, uh, I have two brothers, mm. and they have some personal reason, very valuable reason for mm. selling. Mm. And uh, for me, a uh, family piece is more important yeah. uh, than, than, than keeping uh, uh, a vineyard in the family. Mm. And furthermore, uh, the buyer, the Taillon family, uh, wanted to keep Jean-Guillaume uh, ah. in charge, my son. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they, they sold to, to a new owner who also kept Jean-Guillaume. So there was a, a price continuity at this moment. And was it was it very painful to you to sell that? No, well, in life, sometimes you have to turn a page and uh, and do something else. Yeah. I and mean, as you said, your son, Jean-Guillaume, your very talented son, Jean-Guillaume, must say, stayed on as, as a CEO and he succeeded you. Do you think he changed the style, of course? Because, you know, the 2009, which was a very controversial wine, and I think got 100 points from the American critic Robert Parker. I can't see you having made that wine. I mean, I tasted lots of wines with you, and I've enjoyed tasting your wines. I, were you slightly shocked by it? No. Uh, well, first, the conditions have changed. I mean, the, the, the warming up is a reality. Yeah. And, uh, and therefore, the, the climate changing, the style of the wine changes. Uh, the consumers have also changed. Uh, it is for sure that the, the influence of uh, um, American critics um, had a big effect on, on the winemaking in, in Bordeaux. And uh, maybe the big difference is uh, I, I'm not a competitor. Uh, Jean Guillaume loves competition. He was, he's a very good real tennis player. He plays real tennis in France. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> he always wants to, to, to be the first. And um, and he succeeded getting a hundred points. It's a, it's a great achievement. I, I'm very proud of him for that. Yeah, I mean, since '98, you've created a a new life really outside Bordeaux. As you said, you live in Geneva now. You'd already started Vignacitania in Chile before that in 1990. But I just wonder what your relationship is with Bordeaux these days. Do you still keep in touch with Bordeaux from Geneva? Does it still fascinate you? As it still did? Do you still drink the wines with pleasure? Yeah, 
Well, uh, as far as drinking is concerned, I must say that I'm still drinking the 20th century wine which I brought from Bordeaux to... So you're drinking the wines you made? <laughs> the wines you made, right? Uh, I, I, I like... Uh, <laughs> I, I like the clarets when they are 20 years old, really. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, of course, yeah, I still have many friends in, in, in Bordeaux, mm. and uh, it's interesting to see Bordeaux from outside. Mm. Honestly, I, I'm impressed with uh, the search for excellence, which is really, really in Bordeaux at, at an incredible level. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the new investment, look at the... Uh, a new seller such as uh, Aubagui, for example. Yeah. Uh, a huge investment, uh, but not only for the show. Uh, mm. uh, something which is re remark remarkable yeah. as far as the winemaking is concerned. Yeah, and if you look at Cheval Blanc or, or uh, Mouton as we well, the many, same thing. We, we can yeah. look at many, many of them. Yeah. But uh, now I'm speaking of Aubagui because it's not a first growth and uh, yeah. uh, e e even that a lower level of price, um, they really want to do the, the, the best possible. Yeah. It's really that search for, for excellence. Yeah. I mean, where else have you invested? We've mentioned Chile briefly, um, but you're also where? In Portugal and South Africa, and you were in Spain for a while. Is yeah. that all of the places you've been working? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Spain, we, we, we stopped Spain. That's uh, the only disappointment uh, in, in what I've done uh, outside of Bordeaux. Not because we were unpleased with the wine. On the contrary, we were making a pure monastère, which uh, from Alicante, right? Really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. which which I loved and I still love. <laughs> I still drink it. But uh, monastère is very hard to sell, even in Spain. Yeah, e even in Spain, and uh, we we did not success in uh, on the commercial aspect of the, of the project. Yeah, but on the technical aspect, yes. No, uh, Chile, South Africa, and Portugal, uh, the common point is always the search for terroir. Okay. Yeah. And for me, what really makes a great terroir is the possibility to, to give to the wine aging potential. Yeah. Uh, in Chile, for example, um, I, I was at the time a partner with Paul Pontalier, and uh, we, we had the same friend in, in Chile, Felipe de Salminilla, who was at that time the uh, winemaker at Causinho Macul on the footstep of the Cordillera. And uh, he had many bottles of uh, 20, 30 years old Causinho Macul. And we were very impressed by the way these wines can age. And therefore, we were convinced that this location on the footstep of the Cordillera uh, could give wines with great aging potential. That, that was our motivation to go there. Uh, then we, we tried to produce wine in the south of Chile. This was really a bet. This was very challenging. It, it worked out, but uh, it could have been a disaster. But it, you, uh, you've made one of, one of Chile's great Chardonnays. I think one of the great Chardonnays of the New World, indeed. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Because we... we we knew that the climate was perfect, mm. but the soil, maybe not. Mm. Yeah. Uh, always in the terroir, that combination of, of two elements. And it, it worked out that that was very good. Uh, Portugal, well, Portugal 
the evidence of uh, aging potential we've bought is, is so obvious. Yeah. It is so obvious that we were absolutely convinced uh, with the Symington, my partners, we were convinced that mm. the, the wine will have aging potential, and it has. Uh, the first vintage yeah. was uh, 1920. This is Crisea, yeah? 2020. Yeah. And 20 years later, it's still... still Funnily enough, I, I had a, a 1982 Barca Velia last night, mm -hmm. and it was still very good. Still very... Alive. I'm not surprised. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. And what about South Africa? Yeah. And South Africa, South Africa, Vin de Constance is uh, actually older than many top chateaus of Bordeaux. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the initial vineyards dating back from the uh, um, late 17th century. Yeah. And you see, it, it's amazing how the, the people of the past were able to, to locate the right location, the Great Terroir. Because if you look at the, at the history of, uh, of the vine, you, you will see that the first vineyards have almost always been established on Great Terroir. Yeah, but they were doing it through observation, right? There were no, obviously there were no drones or, or you know, we couldn't do, 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 do electromagnetic, what do you call it, electromagnetivity no, no, testing. They, they had a better, they, they were living closer to, na to Mother Nature. Yeah. And they had a better understanding uh, of location. Yeah. yeah, very good point. Yeah. I mean, most of the things you've done have been either partnerships or joint ventures, haven't they? Do you find it works better if you've got somebody else involved? Well, I like teamwork. Yeah. Well, first, to be realistic, if you have a foreign project, you need a local partner yeah. to, to handle the day-to-day -day work. Uh, but, but I like teamwork. Uh, I, I'm never sure of... Uh, of anything. I, I, I like to discuss, I like to be convinced uh, before taking a decision. Yeah. Okay, so and you need somebody else to convince you in a way. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. okay. Well, that makes sense. I mean, which of the projects do you think has produced the, the, the greatest wines, the wines you're most proud of? Well, that's, well, Vin de Constance probably because, uh, but my involvement is very little. Um, I, I'm not at all uh, a sweet wine person, so, <laughs> but Vin de Constance is, uh, is a magic wine uh, with uh, an incredible history and, and, and outstanding quality. Um, no, Crisella is, is really my favorite. Um, I, 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 the Duro is... More than Aquitania, yeah? Well, uh, it, the father loves all his children. <laughs> we hope so. But... Um, Crisella is more unique than Aquitania. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Aquitania is made from great varieties which are classic. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Syrah. Uh, the Carmener, less classic, maybe. Uh, but Crisella made from Turiga Nacional, Turiga Franca, to local varieties from the Douro Valley. Mm. Uh, that's unique. That has a character which is so different from uh, the, the other great wines you can find elsewhere. I mean, are, are there any wines where you think you haven't, you haven't made something that you're really proud of yet? I mean, I'm thinking maybe Anbilka. I don't think that's your, uh, at the same level as Crisea for me. Uh, well, I, I, I like Anvilka, of yeah. course. But again, Anvilka is, is a classic Cabernet Sauvignon Syrah blend. Mm -hmm. In Australia, you have many uh, very good Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, 
Kriseja, much more unique, yeah. very different. Yeah, I think that's true. And I remember back in 2012, I found this. You said that New World wines do not have the ageability of Bordeaux. Do you think that's still true in both cases? Both is it still true of Bordeaux, and is yeah. it still still also true of these wines of the New World? I mean, have they moved closer together in a way? Well, I, I said that, and then I tried to demonstrate the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> And it's true that uh, uh, the wine I make in, in South Africa, in Chile, in Portugal, they do have ageability. Yeah. And uh, do you think Bordeaux ages as well as it once did? I mean, these wines that you, you, were, you were drinking from the 60s and 70s and 80s, do the wines pre-82 age as well as those, do you think? It, it, it's difficult to, to say. Honestly, uh, when, when I started in the business, uh, there, very few wines had a gelability. Mm. Uh, Bordeaux, Burgundy, certainly, some, some Loire wine, uh, some, may, maybe some uh, Rhone Valley Or Barolo, Barolo, maybe? Barolo, yes, yeah. but the, the problem was to drink them young. Yeah, <laughs> that's a big problem. <laughs> so uh, the, the, the winemaking certainly plays a role in the gelability, but I really believe the terroir is the key. Yeah, interesting. I mean, we've talked a little bit about enology and, and your your very scientific and, 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 and academic background, in a sense. I mean, I, I, a quote that you once said was that you that you see enology as a means of control far more than a means of intervention. Would that be your is that your winemaking motto, in a sense? Well, you know, t today uh, there is a lot of uh, discussion about uh, natural wines. Hmm. Uh, uh, a true natural wine is vinegar. We all know that. Yeah. Uh, control doesn't mean you do nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you can, you must do as less as possible. Yeah. And if you have the proper grape variety, uh, if you have the perfect ripeness, uh, then if if your winery is extremely clean, if you work gently. And uh, if you react in terms of temperature control, for example, uh, level of SO2, mm. uh, but you can make wine with very little intervention. Yeah. But uh, natural wine for me is an oxymoron. Yeah, <laughs> oxymoron. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that you know, you've had this long, very distinguished career. And one of the things that, that you've talked about is the emergence of sort of rock star winemakers, of superstar winemakers, of consultants. And yet you're almost saying that you think the best winemakers, you shouldn't see the winemaker, that what you should be seeing is the place, right? Is the expression of a, of a terroir. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, you, you can make the wine in a given style. Mm. For, for example, if we speak of Criseya, mm. uh, in the Douro, you can easily get huge concentration, great poor. And it, it's also a tradition locally, especially yeah. when wines are made in Lagar. Mm. Um, personally, I like elegance and finesse. Mm. So we try for Kriseya to get elegance and finesse, but not at the expense of uh, uh, power. Yeah. Uh, you, you can put the pressure in one direction or the opposite, mm. but the best wine is always in the middle. Yeah. I mean, in the 90s and, and 2000s in particular, 
the world went through a, a phase, not in all regions, but in many regions, and Bordeaux, one of them, where power you know, and, and extraction and colour and concentration and, and new oak, and, and as you said, talking about the percentage of new oak, became very important. Do you think the world has come back to the styles that, that you like now, these more elegant, refined wines? Definitely, yes. Mm. Definitely, yes. And I, I think for, for, for a very simple reason, is that power is always very impressive when you do tastings, mm. especially if you have many, many samples to taste together. Mm. But when it comes to drinking, uh, power is, can be very tiring. Mm. Yeah. And drinkability is really the first quality of a wine. Yeah. yeah I mean, the, the, I like the French word digest. You know, we don't really have a, an equivalent in English. It would be, I suppose, drinkability, would it be? But it, but it has a food dimension, doesn't it, really? Jacques Puisé, a, a French food and wine expert, was saying that the best quality of a wine is la redemande. Yeah, yeah. The, that you want it again. That you, you're asking for a second glass. <laughs> yeah. I always find the best bottle at dinner is the one that everybody's drunk. It's the same thing. Absolutely. You don't even notice. They've drunk the bottle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, you've been making wine for... I don't want to remind you, but that's 53 years, isn't it? And you've done, what, 104 vintages, I think, if you count both hemispheres. I just wonder, looking back over the 50 years, what, what have been the biggest changes? And we've talked about some of the things, you know, in viticulture and, and, and consumers. Uh, what about communication and the way that white people talk about wine? Well, the, the, the big phenomenon is that wine is no longer part of the daily meal. Yeah. Wine is no longer a food product. It's an entertainment product. So it's it's not only the product itself, it's the history, the people behind the the, the product, the comparison between different wines, uh, the discussion between the guests uh, about the wine uh, that counts, uh, the huge variety of wine, I mean, uh, when I started in, in the business, there was very few wine books. To, today, there are hundreds of thousands of wine books. Probably too many wine books. Uh, <laughs> not yours, not yours. <laughs> <laughs> and um, th this is really the big difference. Mm. So the, the way people enjoy wine has really changed. Yeah. Uh, th they need wines which have quality. They need wine which have style, personality, uh, wines with a history, um, wine which can surprise them. It's uh, yeah, it's an entertainment, really, wine drinking. Yeah, I, I, like, I like that idea. I mean, I, I, I read a speech that you gave, a very interesting speech, to the Académie Internationale du Vin, and, and you quoted the French diplomat, Talleyrand. You said, before one drinks wine, one must communicate about it. And I just wonder, you're a very good communicator. Have you always enjoyed that bit of the business, talking to people and explaining the wines? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, meeting the consumer is, is also the best way to progress mm. because you're always very proud of what you have done, but you, you, need, you need the critics. You, you need to, uh, to, to meet other consumers. To, uh, each person has its own reaction on a wine. We don't have the same taste. Yeah. So it's it's very important to to see how other people uh, appreciate or not your, your wines if you want to progress. Yeah. I mean, one of the big changes, and you just mentioned this really, is that 
is that wine has become more available, just in the same sense that wine information has become more widely available, free very often. But at the top end, the expensive wines have become crazily expensive. You know, I mean, I, I went to a tasting of the middle of Omni Conti yesterday. You don't even want to think about the price of a single bottle of Omni Conti. Um, do you think, are we in danger of, of alienating, you know, passionate wine lovers, what you would call amateurs uh, in, in French, who don't have that kind of money? You see, in Geneva, there is a place called the Portfranc de Genève, which is an inbound warehouse, which is full of uh, superb paintings, which nobody ever looks at, which is full of top bottles of wine, which nobody ever drinks. And, and it is a shame, and it is stupid. Uh, it's even more stupid for, for wine because... Uh, Collecting wines make no sense if you, at the end, if you don't drink the wine. But uh, it, it, it's the way it is. Uh, there is a solution, which is to look at wines which are not collector's items. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I must say, the, the wines I make are very affordable. Uh, they're great wines. Mm. Uh, they can be enjoyed by everybody. Mm. Uh, it's not a wine for speculation. It's a wine for, for enjoying. Was that your idea to make that kind of wine? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, you see, in my time, Cos des Tournelles was very affordable. Uh, to, today, well, the, the markets have changed. I mean, there uh, they, they are people uh, who are so rich that the price is not an issue for them. Yeah, yeah. And tell us why the paintings are in, the paintings are in this warehouse. Is it people are too frightened to put them on the wall in case they get stolen, or are they just investment vehicles? I think they're just investment. Yeah. They're just investment. That's very sad, isn't it? You know, you it, there it, might it be these. Sad. It is these, sad. You could, you could have an amazing, I don't know, Velasquez or something, which which would be in a, in a museum, uh, right? Uh, I always say that uh, I'm not a wine collector. I collect the memories of the great wine I had. Yeah. Do you still buy wine to you know to collect? Do you put it in your cellar? Um, I'm close to eighty, so uh, <laughs> it's time to open the remaining bottles. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I, like, I like that idea. <laughs> I mean, how do you get away from wine? I mean, you've always you've always had a very active mind. You you read a lot. You're you're a great thinker, and you used to sail a lot, didn't you? Was that that was your kind of way of being free? Was it? Yeah, um, I, I go on, on cruises now because I. I I'm a little too old to sail my own boat, but uh, well, when I'm at sea, um, you have a landscape which was exactly the same a million years before. Hmm. Uh, this is this is really unique. Yeah, uh, the continuity uh, of the sea, but at the same time, you you know that uh, there are many problems of uh, pollution and biodiversity, and that uh, and the ocean should should be protected. Yeah, but, I... uh, yeah. Uh, and you really feel that when you are at sea. Yeah, is that where you're happiest almost? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Either that or drinking a bottle of cost that you made. Do you have a favorite well, vintage that well, you made? You, you can do both. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> do you have a favorite vintage that you made when you were at cost in those twenty-eight years? Uh, for for drinking now, um, I think oh um, nine is uh, is really really. Showing extremely well now. Yeah, but you didn't make that, did you? No, 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 no. no. I, I'm thinking of the uh, mm. um, 
No. A, a, a wine that you made. Oh, yeah. Uh, 1919. 19, 19, mm -hmm. Okay, fantastic. Well, if we can get hold of a bottle of that, we should drink that and toast your very long career. It's been fascinating talking to you. So much fun. Um, and I hope to see you very soon, Bruno. Thank you, Tim. Great see you soon. Speaking with you. Bye. I always admire Bruno's intelligence and knowledge, as well as his fantastic sense of humour. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the distinguished philosopher, Professor Barry Smith. See you then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week. <laughs>